welcome to Deception Detection Radio. I'm Kay. We pray you all had a blessed week. Tonight, it's my pleasure to welcome returning guest, researcher, and author, William Ramsey, back to Deception Detection Radio. Welcome, William. It's wonderful to have you back with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's always a joy to have you on. You're so fascinating and have so much information to share. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. I'm going to go ahead and say the opening prayer, and then we'll get started. Okay. Great. Dear Father, thank you so much for bringing us together tonight and letting um, me have this time to fellowship with William and learn about some of the influences from back in time that are, are making their mark today, even though it's been years and years, decades. I want to thank you for looking over us and looking over our audience and just putting that hedge of protection around us and the equipment. And I ask you, Father, to lead tonight's broadcast. Let your words become our words. Let our listeners' ears be opened up and their hearts be softened. I pray this in Jesus' holy and almighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, William, you've written a fascinating book that's called Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 911 in the New World Order. Uh, I recommend our listeners, if you haven't picked up a copy yet, pick it up. It is extremely fascinating. So we're going to talk tonight about the beginnings. Where Aleister Crowley... How things started for him? How did he become this twisted individual in our history? William, could you tell us how he started out? Yeah, he was uh, actually born Edward Alexander Crowley. He did not change his name until his early 20s. So he became and transformed into this kind of occult magus Alistair later on in his life. But he was born in kind of south of Birmingham, it was a place called Leamington Spa, and he was born to a very religious family, a very wealthy religious family. There, the family, the Crowley family, was involved in a brewery. There was actually something a Crowley ale. They actually sold food pubs, but they were uh, not only wealthy. They came for, from a sect of the Christian faith called the Exclusive Brethren. It's actually a subset of what was known as the Plymouth Brethren. This kind of uh, you know, exclusive, very fundamentalist Bible reading. He grew up in a family where they, you know, read from the Bible frequently. And and Crowley was actually very knowledgeable in the Bible. But, uh, you know, at a certain point of his life, he rejected that faith. But he um, was actually a very, very well-known scholar in the Bible later in his life. The person who started the exclusive brethren was a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby. Darby. And, uh, Darby is kind of an interesting kind of literalist. He believed in uh, kind of literalism of the Bible, and he was a dispensationalist. Um, so he had this kind of idea of different dispense- dispenses of knowledge and time, which you know some people have uh, criticized heavily. But you know, Crow- so Crowley, he actually he actually thought that he actually thought that they were they were mediocre. Certain people in the Plymouth Brethren. brethren. And he wrote about that. Crowley wrote a very interesting autobiography he called Confessions and talks a lot about uh, his upbringing in that book. It's 500 pages, Confessions is. But uh, he, you know, recalls about his family habits. He talks about he always learned about the Bible, the end of the world, salvation, nature of sin, the afterlife. Um, He remembered, you know, he had servants at his house. He remembers the household about reading a chapter of the Bible at breakfast. Uh, but he also recalled in his, in his autobiography that he was very, was drawn to revelations that he said was his, his favorite book. He recall, he wrote, he preferred the dragon, the false prophet, the beast and the scarlet woman as being more exciting. So he enjoyed like, uh, you know, he imagined himself in agony and identified himself. This is what he wrote. He identified himself, with a beast whose number is the number of a man, 603 score of six. So he actually, later in life, would call himself the beast and adopt a lot of the imagery that was in the revelations into his his religion of Philema, the ideas that he put in 
he became he called himself the beast and all of his female consorts he called scarlet women and he actually branded them with the mark of the beast like literally branded them like a person would brand a cow he would brand them with the mark of the beast which is a symbol that conjoins a lot of the planetary ideas into uh this this unique symbol that's unique to crowley so he actually drew up his own mark of the beast i think that one of the more important things in his life Crowley really liked his father, but he died of lung cancer. His, his dad was actually a pamphleteer. He would travel around and hand out religious pamphlets to people and, and try to you know, evangelize the gospel, but also transform people's lives. And Crowley would go with him. The young Edward Crowley would go with his dad, but his dad died of, of tongue cancer. And he became kind of the steward of his uncle and mother. And you know, he became became more uh, rebellious, and his mother actually called him the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, he he said that that was when he really turned. He called his mother, he said, her powerful natural instincts were suppressed by religion to the point that she became, after her husband's death, his father's death, a brainless bigot of the most narrow, illogical, and inhuman type. So that was really his fall away from grace. And Crowley sensed in himself that he was going to be, he wanted to be, you know, this kind of make his mark. And one of the more interesting uh, statements that he's made is the following. He said, indeed, my falling away from grace was not occasioned by any intellectual qualms. I accepted the theology of the Plymouth Brethren. In fact, I could hardly conceive of the existence of people who might doubt it. I simply went over to Satan's side, and to this hour I cannot tell why. I was not content to believe in a personal devil and serve him in the ordinary sense of the word. I wanted to get a hold of him personally and become his chief of staff. And so you know, I think that's a very telling statement by Crowley for a variety of reasons. One, it showed that he actually acknowledged that you know what was in the Bible and what he was taught was true. He just became a devil worshiper, and that really uh, instructs anybody who asks whether Crowley was a Satanist, because that's a common question that pops up, is like, was he really a devil worshiper? Um, and I think later in life, he, he used more blinds, he used more statements that were less conclusive or less obvious. But, I, you know, I think that when he says he want, you know, I want to have a personal devil in his chief of staff, I think that's very telling, you know, out of his own writing. So um, that was really kind of his his upbringing. He was uh, a, a, wealth, a child of wealth and went to. Uh, private schools, what we would consider private school, they call them public schools in England, but the best kind of pre, pre-college pre schools you can imagine. He went around to all these other places, Ebor School, Tombridge, these places that are very well known, but he also, at those places, he endured, you know, real br- brutal bullying and cruelty from his fellow students and the teachers. Um, and I think that also, you know, uh, informed his early life of how how he became kind of a non-conformist from his experiences in those schools and you know it uh they're they're really writes about him how how terrifying they were he actually almost got sick and died um at one of these one of these schools but he you know he 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 writes about killing a cat when he was young so it shows kind of his his kind of uh objective lack of sympathy for animals, I think. And that was kind of the way that he had towards other people was really a non empathetic type of person. Um, he said, you know, I wanted to, I'd been told a cat had nine lives. And so he says, I, I wanted to do all these things. He, he caught a cat having administered a larger dose of arsenic. I chloroformed it, hanged it above the gas jet, stabbed it, cut its throat, smashed its skull. And when it had been pretty thoroughly burned, drowned it and threw it out of the window that the fall might remove the ninth life. In fact, the operation was successful. I'd killed a cat. I remember that all the time I was generally sorry for the animal. I simply forced myself to carry out the experiment in the interest of pure science. So, and, you know, going on in his life, he was killing animals during rituals and goats and birds, things like that. So uh, he started he started early with that. And he actually went into, if you look at a picture of Crowley, like I feature a picture of Crowley, uh, one of his more famous pictures on Children of the Beast, where he's just staring at the camera. But you can see on his face he has pockmarks because he actually uh, went into a coma after blowing up a t- uh, 10-pound jar full of 2 pounds of gunpowder. All of this 
shrapnel, I guess, or rocks went into his face. And you can tell from his face that he still has those scars. So, um, and early in life, he, he basically, you know, had a life of a kind of a country gentleman, or I guess I wouldn't think he was much of a gentleman, but he had private tutoring after he got out of these public schools and took up an interest in chess and mountaineering. So he became kind of an avid, avid rock climber and was able to, because of his wealth, was able to travel all throughout England and uh, Europe. He would go to the Swiss Alps and, and do difficult climbs like that. And that was before he ended up going to going to Cambridge to go to school. So that was kind of his growing up in his teen years. He seemed to, as you said, that he wanted to be Satan's right-hand person, but he seemed to identify so much with him. And in his writings, I picked up that he truly wanted to become Satan himself. Am I correct in that? You know, uh, from my writings, I didn't feel like that was it. I think that he was always saw himself as this product of the new Aeon. It's something that he developed later on in life as this kind of prophet of Awas, this entity that he encountered in Egypt. So I didn't feel like, um, I mean, perhaps his ideas were he and Satan were one. Uh, I'd heard that at least with L. Ron Hubbard. You know, his son said L. Ron Hubbard wanted, was one with Satan. I didn't ever come across anything like that in, uh, in my readings of Crowley. I definitely, he definitely saw himself as a position of prophet and also one of the seven most important people Ever. You know, he put himself in the class with Jesus Christ, Buddha, um, who else was in that? Just like other, uh, Muhammad, all these other great uh, religious Confucius. So um, I thought that was, that's an interesting aspect to his personality. It is. Uh, these feelings of, uh, or ideas of grandeur. Yes, definitely grandiose. And all his writings and behavior can be characterized by all these grandiose statements, his ideas. You know, when he went to Cambridge, he wrote, I was part of the glories of the past. I made a firm resolution to be one of the glories of the future. So he definitely was aggressive in his kind of personal life to make his mark. And you kind of see him always wanting to make his mark, whether the people he was with, the things that he did, the public um rituals that he made whether they were in london or new york and uh i think that that is definitely and you know he identified one of the people that he identified was this guy richard burton who was a really well-known adventurer in the 19th century he's one of the first europeans to go to uh, what was then arabia and go to do a hajj to uh, mecca and medina and he was translating all these novels. He was a kind of uh, sexual libertine as well, Burton was. And this was a guy who Crowley identified and wrote when he wrote his when he wrote his autobiography, one of the people that he identified with was Richard Burton, this adventurer who wrote books and was kind of dashing, swashbuckling type. And I think that's an interesting, you know, uh, dedication to the people. He actually dedicated it to Richard Burton. Another one was a famous mountain climber who he would do climbs with. And then another one was uh, this guy. The, the climber's name was Oscar Eckenstein. And then the other was Alan Bennett, who was a uh, well, his kind of spiritual, this kind of Buddhist who he became friends with when he was young. When he attended Trinity College at Cambridge, there were other British luminaries that had attended there. And this seemed to accelerate Crowley's image of himself because he was attending the same school that they had went to. And it took everything up a notch for him, and he became even more evil. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you can see this kind of fevered egotism with Crowley, that he was really interested in his own self-perfection over everything else. And also... That he was a, he saw himself as a member of the upper, a privileged member of the upper class in a very class conscious country at really its apex of global power. You know, so he was a member of this, this British empire whose, whose potency and influence spanned 
the world. And here he was, this kind of wealthy scion who was well-educated and also had a lot of natural intelligence. So um, I do think that his his time at Cambridge was really this kind of springboard that really defined him and his life after, you know, after he left. This is when he got into really heavily into the homosexuality, which was very frowned on at Trinity College. And during that time period, it was frowned on everywhere. Correct. And this is when he actually stepped that up and (laughs) seemed to care. I mean, he did his own thing without fearing of what others would think or do. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he, um, he... he he had these friends who were in part of like the drama society there that he had homosexual this guy by the name of Jerome Pollitt he was a female person impersonary uh, impersonator and he was he said the relation between us was that ideal intimacy which the Greeks considered the greatest glory of manhood and the most precious prize of life so you know he's basically hinting at being a homosexual and I think that. Uh, that was also kind of his his this his moment of rebellion was really it was when he went to Cambridge, so you know back in that time it was Victorian England it was definitely persecute you know you could be persecuted for being a homosexual so it was very uh, scandalous and uh, it shows that uh, the risks he would take there was you know uh, Oscar Wilde had been prosecuted for you know his homosexual leanings or or something associated with that so you know this was known to Crowley and uh was it was it was a very not it wasn't like it is today where you know you can basically have no criminal penalties for saying you're homosexual Mm -hmm. one of the things too that I found interesting when he attended uh, Trinity was the fact that they had a requirement that all the students there would attend religious instruction and he actually refused to do that how did he get away with that without actually getting expelled from the school that's a good question i think that the environment there was a very laissez-faire environment where you could kind of do anything you want even crowley himself said that he didn't go to certain classes or certain certain things he he was supposed to but he kept he would always study. He would, he would study, he would study late into the night. So he would just study what he wanted and he left without a degree. And he thought that he, the reason why he didn't left without a degree was kind of like his arrogance and egotism is that he was above it all that he didn't consider it important. And he, he did that in kind of tip of the hat to other people who had left, uh, Trinity college, uh, other poets who had left without a degree, people like Byron, Shelley, tennis and uh these romantic poets that he identified with so you know he said it has been better so i've accepted no honor from her she has had much from me which uh is a pretty pompous statement by crowley so i think the times back then were a lot different and uh you know like he was a, a son of privilege so for him he he always knew that at least until later in his life that he would always have the the financial resources of his family to no rely upon. And he had started to follow Helena Blavatsky. Could you tell our listeners who she was and exactly the impact and what it really encouraged Crowley to get into and how he started with the magic? Yeah, so right at that time, kind of in the late uh, 19th century, there was a real resurgence or, or explosion in interest in ideas that were coming from the East because of the opportunity, opening of travel um, and uh, just the, the, the interest that was taking place in England. There were all of these people who uh, were searching for this kind of secret knowledge. And one of those people was, they sought out was Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. She started the Theosophical Society that was flourishing there. And she had written a couple of books. One was Isis Unveiled. Um, and those were books, uh, that those were books that had a lot of influence. And so she believed that there were these hidden masters that were guiding humanity and she was in contact with them. She would call them the Mahatmas, the Mahatmas are great white brotherhood. And they had this place in Tibet far away and in some other, 
uh, you know, faraway place. So <clears throat> she believed that, you know, she had the ultimate truth that would be revealed to humanity. And she had this, this kind of Hinduistic anti-Christian ideas. And this was something that influenced a lot of people around there, particularly Crowley. And so, uh, this was kind of where he Crowley became, uh, this person who sought out the secret knowledge. And so he, he would start, he actually, um, you know, sought out people like that. And one of these people that he sought out was a guy who wrote a book called the, uh, it was the, the, the secret, I can't remember the name of it, but basically he started looking around and became interested in the occult. And one of the people who was around that time was uh, Blavatsky. She had a, a huge impact, it seemed, on him because he saw that as the open door that he could get into that and then it would just open more doors for him. And that's when he started getting into the climbing, um, the travel, and he was fascinated with death. And not just from the cats he killed, but just death in general, which creeped me out. Yeah, I mean, I think so. He, he, be, he, I think he identified it with that dark, darker aspects of the occult. And, uh, you know, that's why he, he made the number 11, one of the, the most important number in his old, whole system, which, you know, he, the 11 is the essence of all that is sinful, harmful and imperfect. So that's what, uh, he really identified with. So, you know, he, even later in life, he said, I'm a black magician and I'm also a very good black magician. So, uh, that's something I identified later on in his life. And, and, and that's why he joined the golden dawn, which was really this kind of, uh, other society, kind of like theosophy that was around in that, that era of, uh, you know, the turn of the century England. And that's really how he sprang board. And when he, when he started writing his own religion, he integrated the voice in the silence, which was a book by Blavatsky into his kind of core curriculum, which is interesting. But yeah, I mean, then the Golden Dawn stuff. So the Golden Dawn was a post-Masonic order. It was something that people went to beyond um, masonry. And there were these kind of well-known, educated people who ran it. But the person who influenced Crowley the most was a guy by the name of Samuel Liddell Mathers. He went, took the name McGregor Mathers, which is interesting because this is kind of like the idea that Crowley changed his name to Alistair. But this guy, McGregor Mathers, who is the member of the Golden Dawn, he was interested in the Kabbalah, the Goetia, all of these old grimoires. You know, this is kind of like a uh, kind of common thing in the occult. These people are always looking for this old magic, the old knowledge. And that was something that McGregor Mathers was interested in. And that was something that, um, in you know, Crowley himself called him a magician of extraordinary attainments and a scholar and a gentleman. Coming from Crowley, that was a high compliment. But this was somebody who he and, and McGregor Mathers would wear these ridiculous clothing, this uh, clothing that was the magical clothing, but also clothing of the Scottish took on this, this kind of Scottish Highland demeanor. And this was also something this kind of cartoonish uh, dress up stuff that McGregor Mathers did Crowley would do as well. So really the person that in the early influences, the person that really influenced him was this guy from the Golden Dawn, McGregor Mathers. Now, Mathers, if I remember correctly uh, from the book, isn't he the one that gave such critical critiques of Crowley's writings to where he almost made fun of him? Um, eventually, they would turn on each other. You know, I think that McGregor Mathers was really his ideal. And then eventually they would turn on him. The, one of the people that, that who was in the Golden Dawn who thought Crowley was dangerous was a guy by the name of Yeats, the, you know, this uh, famous poet. And that was the person who really kind of ridiculed Crowley. Um, eventually, called, he actually tried to keep him out of uh, going up into the Golden Dawn because he thought that Crowley was, Crowley was dangerous. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, there were people that he ran into. I, eventually, what the reason why McGregor Mathers got angry with Crowley is because Crowley, in time, would take all of the Golden Dawn material, which he had made an oath to keep secret, and public it, publish it. So they ended up in court together, 
And um, the local judges in the time thought this was like a remarkable event because both of these two magicians were fighting each other in court over, you know, their secret documents. And, uh, but yeah, Bennett was really kind of this, 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 uh, master over Crowley and he would call Crowley would call him the ma- you know, the master in time, but the, you know, eventually, uh, Crowley would try to supersede his early, earlier master, McGregor Mathers. And what kept him from advancing, he wanted to advance at a super fast speed in rank through the Golden Dawn. Correct. And it was eventually, wasn't it, his homosexuality that kept him, or they believe, that kept him from advancing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. Yates and other people within the Golden Dawn considered Crowley dangerous. And uh, that was one of the reasons. There was a first order, and then there was a second order. And so Crowley... These people were trying to keep Crowley from going up to the second order. And Crowley did an end around and went to Paris to go see McGregor Mathers, who was living in Paris at the time, to allow his uh, his ascension into the second order. So he was given this kind of second order thing by, by McGregor Mathers. And that was really one of the uh, you know straws that broke the camel back of, camel's back of the Golden Dawn itself and broke it all up because... They started infighting, and eventually, within the next couple of years, the Golden Dawn would uh, would fall apart. And then it seemed to escalate even more when he and Alan Bennett actually moved in together. That's right. So Bennett, this one person who he really can also considered to be uh, a guiding light, uh, you know, lived together. They did they did rituals together. Um, you know, and, you know, he, Bennett said some interesting things to Crowley when, when Crowley was getting involved in the Goetia, this, this book that supposedly goes all the way back to, uh, you know, the son of David goes all the way back to ancient, ancient, uh, Greek, uh, ancient Israel. And, you know, basically Goetia is this old Kabbalistic thing that has the seven two demon and, and Bennett himself said, oh, you've been uh, playing with the Goetia. So he really was, uh, you know, concerned about Crowley's interest in the darker side of magic. Now he'd even, uh, I believe, purchased or rented a place that had the two rooms that were just dedicated to his debauchery and the magic and the, the devil worship. Yeah, he wrote about it. He he said that he had one of these rooms called he called the Black Temple. He had a human skeleton which from time to time with blood, small birds and the like. The idea was to give it life, but it never got further than causing the bones to be covered with a viscous slime. So uh you know, he was definitely trying to re like this effort to reanimate a skeleton, which was, you know, a failure. But uh yeah, so they were they were together, you know, they said they, they you know, there were strange occurrences there. Crowley said that devils tramped around his big library, and he described 316 of them. Awesome and ghastly experience I had known. So, you know, they believe that they're raising spirits, Crowley thought. So, uh, and this is with Bennett in this this room that they had together in, I think it was 1899 or 1898. But, uh, yeah, so it was through kind of Bennett and McGregor Mathers and the Golden Dawn that that Crowley really learned his stuff and really tried to 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 invoke these demons and have a contact with these demons and that's how Crowley made made it up to the far north of Scotland to his uh, Bulliskin Manor which is where he wanted to practice or do the book of sacred magic of Abermellon the Mage which was you know this this way to um, <clears throat> have control over the 316 servitors of the earth, the four great princes of evil of the world. And, uh, you know, that place, the, the place that he moved into right there at the turn of the century has a kind of notorious reputation, this Bullskin Manor. I thought it was extremely interesting how much time and effort that he put into spending time with these evil entities, the demons and Satan, 
how he had time to do anything else. Because at some of the rituals, they would last for days. Days, yeah. A lot of the rituals he would call working. But, uh, you know, a lot of like the Bulliskin Manor, the, the Abramelin uh, workings were lasting for months. He had to get all of these robes, oils, implements, and stuff like that to, to be able to do the ritual. Um, so, yeah, some of them would take days. He would do writings every day about what he was doing. And, uh, you know, it's pretty pretty unique to think that he was spending months to do. I don't think he ever completed the Abermelon ritual because it took so long. But he did have – he claimed to have results from doing the, the Abermelon ritual. He said that uh, skin became people with shadowy shapes, sufficiently substantial as a rule to be almost opaque. Um, so, you know, and then that was kind of, kind of Boleskin had this uh, reputation for being haunted, at least from that date. It is so creepy. And I'd like for the listeners to know that he wasn't just contacting these spirits. He had a physical relationship with these spirits where he would engage in um, total intimacy with them. That was just, to me, the the height of the debauchery. Yeah, I mean, I think that he would definitely try to ask him questions and try to get received answers through his scarlet women and write them down. So, you know, I think that uh, there's definitely this, you know, he tried to, you know, he had a really had a ring where he could supposedly raise the devil using this ring. So... He was definitely having these uh, long-term... I mean, he would pray to Awas, this being that he encountered in 1904. He prayed to Awas uh, from 1904 to the rest of his life in 1947. That was kind of his chief entity. And then from there, he went on... Could you tell everyone how he ended up meeting his wife? Right, so he ended up uh, meeting his wife... He was actually in northern Scotland through – he knew somebody by the name of Gerald Kelly. And Gerald Kelly was kind of a fellow artist kind of like him, somebody who well, uh, actually went on to be the head of the Royal Society, a very you know, uh, prestigious position. Um, the, the, the Royal Society was you know, something to aspire to. But Gerald Kelly was, became his lifelong friend. Gerald Kelly actually would, ended up being friends with people like Ian Fleming and uh mom too so these guys kind of all knew each other which uh i find i find very interesting but uh he met gerald kelly's wife rose rose was his sister and um during his time north north rose was having marital problems or she was having an affair with a married man and crowley pro- proposed that she married him and that was how that relationship started so rose became you know, uh, they became a married couple and, you know, Crowley being the kind of, uh, wealthy only son of a wealthy family, the Crowley family took her on a global, global tour. They went all around the world, Paris, Marseille, Naples, Cairo. Um, so, um, you know, that was kind of first interesting relationship with a woman. That was his first scarlet woman. And it was with her. They were, you know, they traveled to the King's chamber, the, the main uh, pyramid there in uh, Cairo. And that was kind of what this, it was through her that he had his kind of the receipt of the book of the law in, in Egypt His what he considered to be the most important event in his magical career. Could you talk about that a little bit because of the white light? Yeah. So he was, you know, when they were in Crowley believed that he could, he could, raised astral light. So he talks about being in the dark King's chamber with uh, Rose with a, you know, ultraviolet astral light. He says, I saw the King's chamber was aglow as if with the brightest tropical moonlight. The pitiful dirty yellow flame of the candle was like a blasphemy. And I put it out. The astral light remained during the whole of the invocation for some time afterwards, though it lessened in intensity as we composed ourselves to sleep. So, um, you know, he believed he could use magic to do that. I, I, you know, I've never heard of heard of that, but uh, I, f- I find that very interesting. But that was, uh, you know, sometime in 1903, 1904. And because the vision was given to her, 
Was she involved in any way in the same beliefs that Crowley was? Not at all. And that's kind of what Crowley himself considered to be a validation of what was happening, is that she really didn't know anything about his esoteric knowledge, his occult leanings, or leanings and learnings. She was very, according to him, unknown. So when these gods kind of said to Crowley, they are waiting for me for you through her, uh, he took that as, uh, you know, a very meaningful statement. So, and that's what happened. It was sometime in March in 1904 in Egypt. They'd actually traveled through Egypt to east to either India or China. And then on their way back, this was the event that um, started Crowley's uh, receipt of the book of the law, which happened over three days. And he had asked, you know, her, and she said he was waiting with Horus. Horus was this hawk-headed god of ancient Egypt. So um, it was interesting. They had they had gone to the Bulak Museum, the Egyptian museum, and found this uh, stella inside a, a exhibit, and that exhibit number was the number 666. And that stella, this kind of stella that had Horus, in it's got in a god form would be an important relic in all Thelemic, uh, you know, rituals and uh, in any kind of temple that they would create. They would they were supposed to include the stella, what Crowley called the stella of revealing, and included in any of his kind of rituals. So you see like these pictures of people in modern days with this strange Egyptian stella and. Uh, that traces back to this event in 1904 in Cairo, Egypt. When he was writing everything out, it was almost like he was channeling. Yes, I think that that's what he would say. I mean, I, he said that when he did some rituals, you know, he did some rituals and sat down, and he said that there was a voice, rich tenor or baritone, over his right shoulder with a being of intelligent power, immensely subtler and greater than all we can call human, and dictated to him as a, as, as a scribe. So he said that, uh, I think he, one of his quotes was that, uh, you know, he was, he, was, it was, he was not in his power as he was writing over those three days. And, you know, that's where the book of the law really came from, is from supposedly this, this, this moment, you know. Um, you know, he said, here it is. I'm proud of my personal prowess as a poet, hunter, mountaineer of admittedly dauntless virility. Yet I was being treated like a hypnotized imbecile, only worse, for I was perfectly aware of what I was doing. My own unconscious was thus in alliance with AWAS, this entity. Taken between two fires, my conscious self was paralyzed so long as the pressure lasted. So, you know, I think that, and that happens, you know, there are um, many in in of the occult and of famous people channeling books, you know, so they've been in kind of a trance and writing. There's a, there are these practices known as automatic writing, where they get in a trance, where they let their body be consumed by another. So I think that this is really is claiming happened to, um, you know. And he said here, forced to conclude that the author of the book of the law is an intelligence both alien and superior to myself, yet acquainted with my inmost secrets. And most important point of all, that this intelligence is discarnate. So he's clearly saying it's something out of himself. And he's basically scribbled this book over three days. You can tell that it's interesting, too, because the actual text of the the original text of the book of the law exists. And you can tell that he clearly did very little changing or writing. It was all just in the stream of consciousness. There are some actions that happened later, but it's very, very few. And, uh, you know, so that was uh, that was the Book of Law, and that became the kind of centerpiece of, of Crowley's religion. Lehman had all these cryptic statements. It was broken into three parts for the three days that he was supposedly being dictated to by Awas, and each part is different. But the final part is by Horus, which is a very vicious, aggressive, uh, aggressive statements um, in the book. So people, you know, a lot of occultists and uh, writers have really tried to analyze it and try to divine secret importance in some of the more cryptic statements that are in the Book of the Law. Some are very, some aren't. And, you know, there's very arcane references uh, to a variety of different 
religions and ideas and statements. And uh, so it's, it's a pretty remarkable book. So much of what he wrote was blasphemous. Yes, no and doubt. It's very, the book, I mean, you did such a great job including everything about him. But when I got to Crowley's actual writings, they, they disturbed me to the deepest point of my being. Yeah, I mean, it's really intense. It's very evil. Uh, there are really vicious anti-religious statements in there. I talk a lot about blood drinking, vengeance, you know, worship me with fire and blood, worship me with swords and spears, you know, uh, sacrifice cattle, little and big after a child. You know, so there's all these these references to blood drinking, killing, you know, uh, best, you know, all kinds of different rituals that are be um, still in practice by people who follow follow Philema or follow Crowley's religion. So, um, you know, they actually these things are supposed to actually breed lust for power and lust in the recipient, which very unchristian statements. You know, like that's actually supposed and that, that talks about the cakes of light, you know, it kind of ties into this whole pizza gate where there's this blood of animals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And I mean, it's very there's some writings in some pizza stuff and we don't have to get off topic, but there's stuff in there. They talk about the Lima and about love. So there's this, the con, some of the central concepts of Crowley were love and uh, the Lima and agape will and love. And some people make um you know, some statements about that in, in, uh, in those, in those emails. He had a very close relationship with the dark side and the people that came in and out of his life, his wife and Bennett, he didn't seem to appreciate his relationship with them as much as he did with the dark side, because with his wife, he just picked up and went anywhere he wanted, any time he wanted, for years at a time. His relationship with people was disloyal, and he would turn on them. And it's actually, I think that that was kind of the, the doctrines in his religion actually led him to do that, the idea of a do what you want. And I think that played out in his thing. I mean, he abandoned people who had been with him before. You know, Rose Kelly, who we talked about, went insane. She ended up in a mental asylum. Their daughter passed away under mysterious circumstances. Uh, Another woman who he was with, Persig, he abandoned on the streets of France or Paris for prostitutes. She became a prostitute. Um, So, you know, he broke the jaw of another, uh, the eye socket of another woman later in his life. So you'll see this as a common theme through his life is the wreckage, madness, and destitution of people he's left in his wake. Mm-hmm. To me, it almost seemed that he would push people away and become violent with them to protect himself so that they wouldn't learn as much about him and be able to really get the word out. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think that even if you look at some of his, his more intimate followers, people who followed Crowley, um, they, they, only la- they didn't laugh. You know, they only lasted about three or four years and then they would kind of blow out, whether it's Kenneth Grant, people like uh, Israel Regardi, who kind of wrote a lot of books about Crowley, JFC Fuller, who went to Hitler's birthday. These guys all kind of learned of Crowley and then they would start fighting amongst fighting against each other and they would move on. So I do think that that's an important aspect of Crowley's personality to recognize is his really not. Uh, it's kind of disloyal relationship to both his scarlet women and his his followers. Yeah, it's uh, an inability to make a commitment. It was yes. his only prime commitment and true commitment was to the dark side. Well, I agree with that, and that's another relationship with his children. You know, his children really never saw him. A lot of them, right. some of them, changed their names, and you know, they just he just abandoned them. He had five kids that you never hear about him spending time with his kids ever. Ever. Like we went on a vacation together. Never. Yeah, the only time that he was with his children was when he was in Sicily, when he was in his Abbey of Thelema. And even that was probably a nightmare for the kids because he allowed them to smoke and 
partake in rituals, a really awful experience probably. And you never really hear much about them. You actually, you don't. There was one of the refugees, one of the women who survived, one of the young kids who survived the Abbey of Thelema, actually came to the States and ended up in Northern California in Berkeley. And she just passed away recently. She lived a very long life, but uh, within the last couple of years, she passed away. So she was a direct uh, connection to Aleister Crowley. She, I don't think she talked much about her experience, if she could remember it, at the Abbey of Thelema. Yeah, that I don't think that's something that I, I think I'd try to bury it. Yeah, I mean, the, the stories that came out of the Abbey were really the story there. So I'm, I'm not surprised that a lot of people just, you know, when they had their relationship with Crowley, they just forgot about it or didn't mention it. And with Crowley being so cold and hard with people... He had planned a mountain expedition. He loved to mountain climb. And there there were people that refused to go on that climb. Could you talk about that, please? Yeah, he he had been traveling with this guy, Oscar Eckenstein. He was they tried to uh reach the top of Kanchenjunga in nineteen oh five and uh there was another uh, Himalayan Himalayan adventure that took place where a bunch of French guys were trying to, to travel, and they invited Crowley uh, to partake in this in this in this group. Uh, they were trying to get to Chikanchenjunga, but uh, that was the third highest peak in the world. And Crowley uh, was with them, but the other French guys, this guy Guillermoan, called it Crowley's brutal treatment of the servants. So he was whipping them and. Uh, having trouble. He denied any involvement, but the other members of the party were horrified by Crowley. And then um, was an avalanche that took place, and uh, some of the climbers were dislodged and buried in the snow. Four members of the expedition died. But while they were crying for help, Crowley just stayed in his tent and uh, really didn't trouble himself to help at all, but just assisted in the burial of the four dead people. So that uh, earned him in that community of the mountain climbers that earned him uh, a really horrible relationship. And he was never invited to any future mountain climbing expeditions in the future. You know, it was from after coming back from that ill-fated attempt that Crowley wrote to Gerald Kelly, the brother of his, his former wife, uh, and said, I say hell with Christianity, rationalism, Buddhism, all the lumber of the centuries. I bring you positive and primeval fact, magic by name. And with this, I will build me and the new earth. I want none of your faintable or faintest disrespect. I want blasphemy, murder, rape, revolution, anything bad or good but strong. So this is when Crowley is 30 years old. And, you know, he still was kind of building building up his uh, kind of magical, his magical career. It was just kind of started. Mm-hmm. And his wife eventually, she lost her mind also, didn't she? Eventually. Did. Uh, Rose Kelly did, yes. She she ended up in kind of a institution for people who drink too much. So okay, that's right. It was a, it was, yeah, it was a really bad experience for her. During all this, then, Crowley, is, I'm sorry, Crowley is still trying to advance himself through the ranks with the Freemasons and everything. It was interesting how he went about this because he would just be at one level and then the next thing you know he's at a higher level, but no one put him there except himself. Correct. Yeah, he, he took a lot. I mean, his advancement to the 33rd degree is disputed among Masons because it was provided to him by somebody in Mexico. He he might have gone through some ranks just by his own. He granted certain ranks to himself, as he you know ipsissimus. He said, "I've reached the grade of ipsissimus." There was really nobody granting him that. So uh, it was interesting that that's that's kind of the way he progressed. Is now I'm now a magister templi, a magist, magist, master of the temple, things like that. And uh, pretty pompous. And those ranks were kind of invented, yeah, self granted. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after that? How did he spread his evil? Well, he was always writing and practicing magic. So he was constantly writing. And then he came in contact prior to World War I with a member of the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and became a member of the OTO. And 
they were they came to reach him because he was doing experiments in magic tinged with sexual practices and so uh that's how he became an OTO and he also started his own religion called the AA Arjum Argentum which was a self uh practices of magic you could do by yourself so that's the way he was spreading and kind of spreading out his occult knowledge all the while writing he created his own encyclopedia called the that people could reference so he was he was very very much trying to uh expand his repute and his impact by getting followers and still writing all these magical treatises so uh, by the time he was 30 or 35 he was you know a very well-schooled uh magician his name got spread far and wide and those were in the days that we didn't have the communications or the things that we have now. So for him to be well-known in those days, he had to be extremely evil. How do you think that his name got to be so well-known? Oh, that's a good question. I think that during his, his writings, he really reached out to people in his class. And he was always traveling to centers where elites were, whether it was London or Paris. And, uh, you know, Somerset Mom wrote a book called The Magician that uh, was a kind of talked about Crowley. It was a reference. Crowley was the main reference. So, you know, these names and people he was out. And I think he wanted to have some type of reputation, not exactly the worst reputation, but he was always looking for followers. So I think by the time he was done, in Sicily around 1923, he was extremely well-known by the time he was 50. And everybody, you know, the writings about Crowley, there are warnings about Crowley. And he had the reputation, for better or worse, of that he wanted. So uh, I think that the fact that he, he became the head of these secret orders and that he uh, was really kind of one of the chief occultists who – you know, as a, as a really, he really was a, a great scholar. I think people looked to him for knowledge and he had earned the, that kind of title as a magus, as a, a very intelligent, you know, well-referenced person. And so I think that that's why he's still a well-known figure. I think that that's why occultists always go back to Crowley as a baseline, not as much Blavatsky or maybe, maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, some of these other Masonic uh, people, but Crowley still is kind of like a uh, exemplar for occultists. Where did his saying "Doest thou wilt, and so above, or as above, so below"? Where did he come up with those? Well, he actually the idea of "Do it thou wilt" references it goes back to uh, Nesay Budras. It goes back through actually the. Monks of Medmahan, which were the Hellfire Club that was in um, that was in London. That was uh, the Hell Club was something that Benjamin Franklin was involved in, and they that actually that they say Voudras do what thou wilt goes back to before that and to the playwright Rabelais, who in the play Gantua described an ideal community and called it the Leem. So, and whose governing them was they say. So do what thou wilt was an idea that Corley incorporated into, you know, his his religion of having no restrictions. He thought that that was really the ideal life for human beings. So that's where and do what thou wilt. He, he kind of codified it into a religion where do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is 11 syllables, 11, 11 words. You know, so he he was a person who re-systematized those concepts into his religion of Thelema. As above, so below goes back to Hermes Trismegistus. It's some other part of the Western tradition, but it comes, I think, from the Emerald Tablet, which is a concept in magic that I think that what you do here affects um, the other other planes, or you know. And so I think that that I don't really totally know what that magical principle is, but I think it means. I gathered when I read that, and the first times I'd heard it as a twisting of the scriptures because it says what you reap on earth so you shall reap in heaven interesting yeah i honestly i i don't i can't i can't claim to really know 
know what that is. And I know next week we're going to get very in-depth of how he has influenced the world today. But do you believe that Crowley paved the way for Hitler and the likes of him? I think that he influenced Hitler. I, I suspect that Hitler knew some of the stuff. Crowley was in Germany from uh, in and out of Germany from 1930 to 1933, right as the Nazis were ascending. And the doctrines, and I write about them, the similarity in Crowley and Hitler's doctrines, and the fact that Hitler was very well known or acquainted, and so was Hitler with magical grimoires. The OTO came out of of Germany. It was a German secret society from the 19th century, which Crowley became the head of in 1925. And I think as an occultist, um, and there is knowledge of, of an attempted connection between Crowley and Hitler through one of Crowley's followers by the name of Kunzel. And then also J.F.C. Fuller, who was an old friend of Crowley's, who went to Hitler's birthday and actually talked to Hitler. Um, so I do think that there, there may have been some cross-fertilization and ideas how much of that contact uh, is legit. Historians really haven't, uh, at least Western historians, perhaps German historians have, but they haven't really nailed down uh, any physical or personal contact. But the ideological contact, I think, is really almost a, their, their ideas about humanity and the future and the ideal population are uh, blue, uh, really carbon copies. They're very, very similar. I talk about that, about kind of a uh, the idea of an aristocracy ruling over the, the masses. And I think, you know, the Nazis kind of were a party who ruled over everything and their ideas about breeding people and the triumph of the strong over the weak and uh, the power of the will. The will is powerful. And if you read Hitler's speeches and his talks to, uh, you know, the German, German people, he was talking about, I have the will. I, he would say that all often, you know, so I do think that they're similar. I think there's a lot of room for for investigation into that, but I think that that the similarities now, you know, I think are are pretty obvious. Yes, they are. And as I said, next, you know, this week we've been covering the beginnings of Crowley and exactly what he was getting into to set us up for next week's episode. Is there any part of Crowley's life that we have missed so far that you feel had us a definite impact on what we'll talk about next week? Well, I think that uh, I think that just the notion of Crowley uh, of establishing himself as the prophet of this new religion, and the, the fact that he is setting the, the stage for what, what he really wants to do is a, a foundation for further further magicians. I think that that. Uh, I think is vital, a vitally uh, important aspect of, you know, what we're talking about and how how that that intent by Crowley has played itself out into the 20th century and into people who have also shared his um, idea to impact, you know, humanity and culture. So I think that understanding that aspect of Crowley and his intent, I think, is important. Well, it's been extremely interesting tonight, and as I said, I, I'm absolutely book, and I recommend it. Before we close tonight with a closing prayer, could you please let people know where they can contact you, where they can purchase your book, and you've written other books, too. Correct. Yeah, I have uh, four books out there. I've got uh, Alistair Crowley's The Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, The New World Order. I have a book about the West Memphis Three called Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. Uh, my most recent book is Children of the Beast, uh, Alistair Crowley's Shadow of Humanity, which I just put out on um, Amazon, so people can pick that up. And then I also have Alistair Crowley Visual Study, which is really just more picture kind of book about Crowley. But those are all available on Amazon or at my website, which and you have an awesome YouTube channel, too, by the same name, Occult Investigations. That's true. So you can find me at William Ramsey Investigator, Occult Investigations. I have tons of videos about Crowley, about kind of modern occultism, about the West Memphis Three. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, feel free to check that out. Subscribe if you get a chance. And anyone who is listening tonight that did not hear our previous interview with William Ramsey, we conducted one on his book about the West Memphis Three. It's 
very detailed and honestly it's one of my favorites so if you want to hear more and you want to hear more with William Ramsey make sure you check that out because we really get into depth so William it's been wonderful tonight I'm looking forward to our episode next week likewise